Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, rising floodwaters from Florence continue to threaten North Carolina. At this hour, Wilmington is cut off from the rest of the state in the aftermath of Hurricane Florence, now a tropical depression. The Department of Health and Human Services last week declared public health emergencies in North and South Carolina. Standing by with a live report from Charlotte, North Carolina, is senior health care consultant Sharon Easterling. Also standing by to report on the compliance issues surrounding recovery efforts is Alan Fink-Samnick, also on today's Monitor Monday, healthcare attorney David Glazer is standing by with another example of risky business. Timothy Powell will report on compliance issues surrounding hospital readmissions. Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey. And Dr. Daniel Zirkman making his Monday rounds at his facility, Carolina East Medical Center in New Bern, North Carolina. But now we go live to Charlotte, North Carolina, where Sharon Easterling has a live report on the impact of Florence. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning, Chuck, and my other co-host and a very special good morning to our Rack Monitor listeners out there. Uh, especially thoughts and prayers are going out to my fellow, fellow South and North Carolinians that are in the process of putting the pieces back together following the devastating effects of Hurricane Florence. Florence is now a tropical de- depression or was downgraded to a tropical depression and is making its way out of North Carolina into the Virginia area. North Carolina South and South Carolina residents and healthcare organizations as well as our government officials were preparing for Florence well prior to its um, encroachment into the North Carolina area. But, however, it still caused a lot of damage that we could not fully prepare for, and that damage came in the form of tremendous amounts of water. Many of our homes and businesses They've been dealing with the residual effects of the storm, as many of you have probably seen through some of your Facebook posts from your friends that are in these areas. There are also citizens across the state still in shelters and unsure when they will be allowed back into their homes. I know our co-host, Dr. Zirkman, mentioned that he was just allowed to get back in his home this morning. So let's Think about all those folks that are still having those challenges. Now, a number of our hospitals in the state were in the line of sight for Florence, so many of them began transferring their patients early last week, and that included to some of their sister hospitals. Of course, many of our hospitals in North Carolina and South Carolina are a part of health systems, so that allowed them to transfer patients and also share their information. And this information, in many cases, was um, being shared by some of our um, computer systems, such as Epic or um, whatever health information system they were on. Um, There is a mandate in the state where we have an incident command that is through our hospital associations. So that allowed the smooth transfer 
of patients um, from, of our, from some of our smaller rural facilities that were in the direct line of path to some of our more urban facilities, such as those that are here in the Charlotte area and some of our other um, facilities that were in the upper part of the states of South Carolina and North Carolina. Um, I do know that our many of the ED services were staffed and continued providing services to their patients. However, many of those inpatient services were not being um, allowed. So they, because of the transfer of the patients, those services were closed. Nursing homes have been on, nurses have been on call and staff have been on call to be able to meet the needs. So many facilities brought on additional staffing. They also had nursing staff and other healthcare providers on call because they were unsure of the tremendous amount of need from the influx of patients that would be coming in. Also, many engineering staff were also put on call and called in for emergencies. One of our hospitals here in North Carolina, for instance, had water damage some time ago, so they put in very special engineering to make sure that their patients would not be at risk for flood damage again. As far as seeing patients in the clinic, a number of the clinics here in the state are closed. However, in some of the more urban areas, those clinics are open and seeing patients. I would advise you, if you need to go to your clinic, to reach out to that clinic to find out the status to see if you can go in and have a visit. And that is much of our report for the storm here in the North Carolina and South Carolina areas. Um, my thoughts are with all of, all of you, and um, let's hope that we can get back to taking care of patients and have a smooth transition in being better prepared. Thank you very much, Sharon. That was Sharon Easterling. Sharon is the CEO of Recovery Analytics. And now we check in with Dr. Daniel Zirkman at Carolina East Medical Center in New Bern, North Carolina, where he's making his Monday rounds. Monday rounds is sponsored today by Rack University. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Daniel Zirkman. Good morning, Chuck. Reporting to you from New Bern, North Carolina, where we have just spent the last 96 hours in the hospital uh, as we bore the brunt of Hurricane Florence. Um, the last four days obviously have been a series of very extraordinary circumstances uh, that have obviously stressed the hospital systems frightfully beyond what we're typically designed to handle. Uh, from uh, the ED care, where large numbers of not just acutely ill patients, but stranded patients um, presented, uh, to dealing with hospital care to patient numbers that swelled well beyond our bed capacity and staff capacity, uh, and of course dealing with physical plan issues uh, that are associated with a catastrophic storm from power failure, loss, leaking roofs, equipment failure, etc. Clearly to survive, if you will, a situation like this, one must have well-designed plans in place. And, and Sharon uh, uh, Easterling has just well described some of the uh, the plans and, and contingencies that you have to put into place to prepare for the unexpected. Um, at Caroline East Medical Center, hurricanes are an annual visitor, so we've had years of experience dealing with storms, um, and the preparation has been in place for a long time. Uh, the hospital has a system that's staffed by hospital leadership that pro provides a protocol 
of steps, both for advanced preparation and on-site command center uh, oversight to, 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 in order to manage any acute contingencies and situations that develop. Um, in, in a quick overview, preparation includes starting several days before the storm, stockpiling. We try to stockpile seven, at least seven days worth of standalone hospital operations equipment and supplies, including food, pharmacy, water, linens, maintenance equipment. Um, and uh, in addition, it includes um, systems such as the backup generators, which are topped off with fuel seven to 10 days worth to ensure that we have continuous power. Uh, we secure the facility and the physical plant. Um, many of the critical systems and machinery are inspected, tuned up, and 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 covered for potential weather-related exposure and damage, again, well prior to the arrival of the storm. Big part of the planning is on-site staffing. Uh, on-site staffing. Uh, at least a day before the storm, we bunk up the hospital with at least two or three shifts worth of staff, nursing, support services, maintenance, and engineering crew, uh, and of course, physicians on a voluntary basis. Uh, in the midst of the storm, it's critical that anybody in the hospital takes on any role necessary uh, in order to keep systems running. Um, it's a remarkable human interest picture to see the hospital attorney and a <clears throat> and a vice president uh, sitting behind the cafeteria or standing behind the cafeteria service area providing meals for patients, or to see a the head of coding pushing. Uh, gurneys and getting patients to and from rooms. But the real key to being prepared is having a central command, incident command, uh, in place well in advance with all the protocols and keys to handling any situations that come up. Uh, we have uh, great leadership here at the hospital that um, forms the incident command system. They meet during the course of the storm and have been meeting at least three times a day where updates are provided, problems are identified, solutions are formulated on the spot, and then people are assigned uh, to implement the necessary changes and processes. Um, this has proven to be absolutely critical for us to have gotten by the last four or five days. Um, but even with the best laid plans, situations arise that require very quick decision making, often creative solutions, uh, and, and not all of that takes place in the command center. So I give a shout out to all the crew at Carolina East Medical Center that spent the last four days in the hospital. Um, beyond the preparation, um, what it really comes down to is, again, that human side. and leadership starts from the top down and our leadership from our CEO to our chief financial officer, hospital attorney, vice presidents, physicians, these folks stayed in the hospital, slept in cots in their offices and in, in rooms and never left the facility through the last at least 72 hours. There's no way to impress upon one at how important that is to see leadership on site working side by side with the staff and, and how meaningful that is 
in terms of uh, providing a culture of do everything we can to get through situations like this. So we have survived. It's 96 hours through the storm, and we're not back to normal routine yet, but we're certainly functioning at a level that uh, I find even unexpected given the gravity of the, the last four days in the storm. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Zirkman. That was the Senior Physician Advisor at Carolinas Medical Center, Dr. Daniel Zirkman. Dr. Zirkman was making his Monday rounds from his facility at New Bern, North Carolina. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday Listener Survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Uh, good morning, Chuck, um, and welcome to all of our listeners this morning. My hot topic this morning is on, and everybody grab a pencil, I'll restate the memorandum a few times, transmittal number 819 to the Medicare Program Integrity Manual, that's transmittal 819, which can be picked up on the CMS website under 2018 transmittals. This basically um, provides context into um, Chapter 3 of the Program Integrity Manual regarding the CMS Targeted Probe and Educate, which began last October 1st, which we've covered here on Monitor Monday since that time. In the transmittal, I want to point out a couple of things that I don't think were very obvious in the prior CMS communications regarding Targeted Probe and Educate, or necessarily in the information that's sent to uh, people that have been selected. So number one, the instructions are the MAC shall select samples of typically of 20 to 40 claims. However, probe samples of different sizes can be deemed appropriate on a case-by-case basis with approval from CMS. My second um, item is that the MAC notify providers that they have the option to refer providers and suppliers to the RAC or to the UPIC at any time. Third item, one-on-one education is defined as teleconference calls, face-to-face visits, electronic visits using webinar or other similar technologies. And I've reported on providers that have had some trouble getting calls. And then there is an additional guidance on calculating the provider-supplier claim error rate and when the MAC determines somebody's improved enough. If you're under-targeted probe and educate or think you might be soon, please head on over to CMS and pick up Transmittal 189 to the Program Integrity Manual. And now we're going to bring our poll up. And our poll this morning is brought to you this morning by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. Comments on the Physician's Fee Schedule proposed rule were due last Monday. Dr. Hirsch actually reminded all of us that it was in our best interest to submit comments, particularly on the proposal for the E&M codes. Just kind of get a quick poll to see where our listeners fell. Check number one if you commented on the proposed rule. Check number two if your organization commented. Number three if both you and your organization commented. Or no comment. Way around. Chuck, we'll be back a little later in the program to give the results of our poll. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. As Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up in about 15 minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Tim Powell, and Alan Fink-Samnick. This is Monday, September 17th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. 
When patient admission intersects with patient placement, you and your team come face-to-face with a major decision that impacts care and costs. Make the wrong decision and there's seldom any turning back. Waukesha Memorial Hospital has been able to reduce percentage of self-denials by placing registered nurse case managers skilled in utilization review in the ED. During a case study-driven webcast coming your way tomorrow, you and your team will learn how to reduce costly admissions, readmissions, and self-denials while increasing patient satisfaction and supporting appropriate hospital utilization efforts. Plan to attend tomorrow's webcast, RN Case Managers in the ED, a case study for appropriate patient status. To register, click on the handout tab in today's broadcast. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment is healthcare attorney David Glazer. So David, what is risky this morning? So good morning, Chuck. Before we dive into risk, I just want to mention I will be in Indiana speaking at the regional HCCA meeting next week. And I'm mentioning it for two reasons. First, if you're there, come say hi. But second, my topic is tips for conducting employee interviews. And if you think that would make a good Rack Monitor broadcast top, uh, webinar topic, uh, shoot a, uh, a, a comment in the chat box. So this week and next, I want to talk about the supervision of Incident 2 services. Now this is complicated in part because the supervision requirements for services in a clinic and services in a hospital are different, despite the fact that both are described as Incident 2. Despite identical labeling, they have different requirements. So today, I'm going to focus on clinics. Where must a physician be to supervise services Incident 2 in the clinic? Now, the Incident 2 regulation, which is at 42 CFR 410.26, shoots us to the diagnostic test rule at 410.32b3 to define direct supervision. According to the rule, direct supervision in the office setting means the physician must be present in the office suite and immediately available to furnish assistance and direction throughout the performance of the procedure. It does not mean the physician must be present in the room when the procedure is performed. Now, this is weird. The rule tells us more about direct supervision is not than what it is. So what is the definition of the office suite? The truth is, we don't know. I've often said the physician should be able to reach the patient within 30 seconds. Now, I can't point to legal authority for this assertion. I'm relying on common sense and my perception of the policy. I assume that the supervision requirement is a patient safety issue. If the, patient, I'm sorry, if the physician can be at the patient's side within 30 seconds to start resuscitation, it's difficult to see how anyone could find fault with the level of supervision. Basically, I'm assuming it's a, if the patient keels over, can the doctor get there to help? Now, to the best of my knowledge, the only other guidance from CMS on the definition of office suite is found in a federal register that was issued January 9th 1998. Now this text is in the preamble, and remember preamble is text that comes out explaining a rule, but this is a proposed rule, and that rule was never adopted. So the regulatory significance of this text would be really darn close to zero. But here's what they said, and the next four sentences or five sentences is a long quote. We're not proposing that there must be any particular configuration of rooms for an office to qualify as an office suite. However, direct supervision means the physician must be in the office suite and immediately available to provide assistance and direction. Thus, a group of contiguous rooms should in most cases satisfy the requirement. 
we've been asked whether it would be possible for a physician to directly supervise a service furnished on a different floor. We think the answer would depend upon individual circumstances that demonstrate the physician is close at hand. The question of physician proximity for uh, physician referral purposes, as well as incident to purposes, is a decision that only the local carrier could make based on the layout of each office. For example, a carrier might decide that in certain circumstances it's appropriate for one room of an office suite to be located on a different floor, such as when the physician practices on two floors in a townhouse. Well, that's not super clear, and it's not binding. So, Chuck, I'm going to stick by my 30-second test. And I don't know exactly where the physician must be watching from, but I will say with some confidence that it's not enough to channel Alan Parsons and be an eye in the sky watching you. I am the eye in the sky looking at you. I can read your mind. Back to you, Chuck, and next week we'll talk about the hospital. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David's a shareholder in the law firm at Fredericton Byron in downtown Minneapolis. There are important changes that are going to impact the 2019 computations of readmission and penalties. With more on that developing story, is Rack Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Chuck. And since 2013, Medicare has penalized hospitals that have what they consider to be an excessive number of readmissions under a program called the Hospital Readmissions Reductions Program, or HARP. CMS measures for hospital performance in the HRRP program works by calculating the ratio of excess readmissions in each of six program measures. The ratio is, is predicted to expected readmissions for any given measure, and the payment adjustment factor is used to calculate the size of the payment reduction. The factors that are currently being used for HRP include acute myocardial infarction, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, heart failure, pneumonia, coronary artery bypass or cabbage graft, and elective primary total hip or knee replacement. Now, there was a problem and a complaint among certain types of hospitals with the penalty computations. According to an article published in the journal of, by the Journal of American Medical Association in 2013, certain types of hospitals bore the brunt of the penalties. They found, and I quote, that we found that major teaching hospitals were more likely to be penalized than non-teaching hospitals, respectively, uh, would be penalized, and that safety net hospitals were also more likely to be highly penalized than non-safety net hospitals. In December of 2016, the 21st Century Cures Act was signed into law. The legislation requires that CMS assess penalties based on a hospital's performance relative to that of other hospitals with a similar proportion of patients that are duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid. The legislation further requires that estimated payments under the new methodology equal payments under the old design known as budget neutrality. The rub of budget neutrality in a provision such as this is that uh, all payments are prospective in nature, and you're only working on guesses. So beginning in for fiscal 2019, the hospital performance for the HRP assessment relative to the performance of hospitals are going to be adjusted based on a peer group rather than using a median of 1.0. Uh, therefore, hospitals are going to be stratified into five different peer groups or quintiles based on the proportion of dual eligible days. A hospital's proportion... Dual proportion is a proportion of Medicare fee-for-service or FFS days 
and Medicare Advantage days where the patient was duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid. So what is our conclusion? Is the new method fair? Is it really true that hospitals with higher Medicaid populations face a more difficult readmission problem? Is it fair to increase reimbursement to hospitals with high Medicaid cases when they already get an additional uh, payment for disproportionate share? These are policy issues that will continue to be debated, and we have no opinion and take no sides. Finally, in conclusion, we say while we wait and see what the peer group data will show, there's no doubt that hospitals with lower Medicaid populations will bear much more of the readmission penalty going forward. These new regulations will tend to pit hospitals within peer groups against each other in the fight against the penalties. It will also impact Medicare Advantage reimbursement for contracted and non-contracted services. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks him very much. That was Rec Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim is a nationally recognized expert on regulatory matters. This morning, we're monitoring the impact of Florence. Reporting on the compliance issues surrounding natural disasters is nationally recognized social determinants of health expert, Alan Fink-Samnick. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck. Uh, first and foremost, so many folks have been impacted uh, this hurricane season, both on the east and west coast, by these storms. I do hope all of our listeners and those near and dear are safe. Now, we all know compliance is critical, but during disasters, it's a mandate. It involves being in sync with established guidelines and regulations, as those before me today have mentioned, and especially those for reimbursement. It also involves assuring organizational safety and efficiency during emergency situations to best meet the needs of patients, as Dr. Zirkin so eloquently um, shared from his own experiences. Well, here is my Emergency Preparedness 101 compliance list. First, we discussed the waiving of HIPAA privacy sanctions and penalties for hospitals impacted by disasters last week. Further OCR guidance was issued September 13th on equity access to emergency services for individuals with disabilities, those deaf or hard of hearing, and with limited English proficiency. Details about this memo are in the broadcast handout section and the hhs.gov website. Two, CMS waived several Medicare, Medicaid, and Children's Health Program requirements as well. Blanket waivers so providers wouldn't have to request specific types of hospitals and facilities. Special enrollment periods so Medicare beneficiaries impacted could change health and prescription drug plans to access care, enabling continued access to dialysis by activating the Kidney Community Emergency Response Program in collaboration with the end-stage renal disease network of the South Atlantic, and easy replacements placements for those who lost or sustained damage to uh, durable medical equipment due to the storms. Three, I'll admit it, I'm a stickler for those ICD-10Z codes to address the social determinants of health. Now, several codes are relevant for regions impacted by disasters, those traditionally on the risk, um, at risk, as well as those now on the cusp of being with the social determinants. Z59.1 of inadequate housing, Z59.4, lack of adequate food and safe drinking water, Z63.4, disappearance and death of a family member, Z63.6, dependent relative needing care at home, or Z63.7, other stressful life events affecting family members. Four, Remember non-clinical documentation to validate the codes. Why focus on the Z codes? Well, join me on Thursday's webcast, taking the stress out of the stress codes. Registration information is in our handout section and on the website. 
five, the CMS emergency preparedness rule addresses Medicare and Medicaid participating providers and suppliers. Also detailed on the HHS.gov website, it covers natural and man-made disasters with four key areas. First, building that emergency management plan with an assessment checklist that includes copies of state and local emergency planning regs, facility personnel names and contact information, contact information of local and state emergency managers, your facility organization chart, building construction and life safety systems information, key about the needs of individuals receiving care. Second, assure policy and procedures are in place to implement the plan. You know, developing and writing emergency plans are easy. Assessing the plan and accounting for needed change is tougher. Allow the time to develop and document policies with a clear schedule for review, update, and maintenance built in. In terms of compliance, proactive efforts beat reactive response to achieve long-term success. Third, develop realistic emergency community plans to coordinate care across providers with state and local public health departments, management systems, and federal and state laws. Fourth, trainings for all staff on emergency preparedness policies and procedures must be offered, as well as those annual refreshers for staff to affirm proficiency. Finally, make sure emergency preparedness plans work and are fixed as needed. We all know the mantra, if it's not broken, don't fix it. But for the compliance-minded, we can't fix what we don't know is broken. Stay proactive, prepared, and, of course, safe. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Ellen. That was Ellen Fink-Samnick. Ellen is a former emergency department and ICU case manager. Now it's the time for the results of our Monitor Money Listener Survey. Here once again is Nancy Beckley. Nancy. All righty, Chuck, and brought to us by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. Two percent of our listeners said they personally commented on the proposed rule last week to the physician's fee schedule. Twenty-two percent said their organization commented. And 3% said both their organization and they commented. So good to know we got some great comments from our well-informed listeners. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That's going to be a wrap for us. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists this morning, Nancy Beckley, who we just heard, Sharon Easterling, David Glazer, Alan Vink-Samnick, Tim Powell, and Dr. Daniel Zirkman. And we thank you for starting off your week with us this morning. And to our friends who have been impacted by Florence, be safe and take care. And please join me tomorrow for the webcast, RN Case Managers in ED. It's a case study for appropriate patient status. Until tomorrow, 1.30 p.m., I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.